My name's Helen Keane and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Adventures in Space and Tim, a podcast inspired by space generally and Tim Peake's mission to the International Space Station in particular. In this episode, Father Positractors, we look at the history and origins of some space words with the illusionist podcast brilliant word maestro Helen Zaltzman. We find out why one day we may end up on Mars living in Princess Leoville or even General Organa City. We also hear the little-known story of the first British person in space who set off from a Butlins holiday camp in Skegness in the 1950s. Or did he? Find out in some magical vintage audio from magicians Patrick Page and Maurice Vogel. But first, the Higgs Centre for Innovation is a groundbreaking new facility based at the beautiful hilltop Royal Observatory, Edinburgh. It was created by the Science and Technology Facilities Council and Edinburgh University and is designed for collaborative use by industry, academia and research institutions, working with big data, astronomy, particle physics and space technology. I met the Head of Innovation, Dr Julian Dines, to find out how astronomical expertise can be used to detect the early signs of sight loss, and how particle accelerators may also be able to accelerate getting through security at the airport. I started, though, by asking Julian about small satellites known as CubeSats. They're only about the size of those boxes containing a bottle of whiskey that you may see in the supermarket, or indeed your living room. But these tiny satellites are something of a speciality to the UK and can be surprisingly powerful. So, what are they useful for? Well... Things like communications, Mm. where you're trying to get um, broadband to very remote rural areas. How much power can you get into a tiny satellite? Again, not a huge amount, but if you've got a constellation of them, then you've got the potential to provide very broad coverage. Um, People are using them to look at um, things like the way that radio signals go through the atmosphere to get better measurements of how the atmosphere is moving. And for that, you need two sources that are linking together through the atmosphere, and you want regular updates. So what you actually want is lots of measurements from lots of different places. So again, nanosats are really good at that. What will that provide? It provides better forecasting for weather because one of the big unknowns is what's happening in that upper atmosphere that's moving around all the time. By hundreds of miles, things can move around. So you you want to get better understanding of that, so you need lots of data. Single satellites can provide you extremely high-resolution information, but maybe not so... Um, spread out across the world. Well, with the nanosats, you you just have worldwide coverage. Mm. You put one up, and it's circling the world, and it's mm. so it it will cover the whole surface of the mm. world over a, a certain period. But so do all the others, mm. but at different times and at different angles. So that also gives you an ability to look at the surface of the Earth. So you can take measurements on the Earth, on the oceans, in the atmosphere above the Earth. So there are applications that um, we're we're looking at here, which are looking at um, nitrous oxide measurements at sort of eye level on the mm. ground. What what are you actually getting when you breathe in when you're walking through cities? And that's, so you're actually measuring that from space. You can measure that from space. So mm. there's there's projects on the go to try to build instruments mm. that you can put in space to measure what's actually happening. So what you're in experiencing is breathing air on the street is being yeah. measured. 
from up above your head. So, and likewise, we've, be, we've built an airborne version of one that is measuring carbon dioxide and methane in the atmosphere, and it gives you sort of volumetric measurements, not just what's the total amount up a column, but how much is it at different layers up in the atmosphere. So if you can provide that in a satellite platform, then you can cover the whole of the Earth, and you can get lots of different measurements constantly refreshing as you circle around. And that's the sort of thing that you need for these global climate change models. So ultimately, you're trying to predict the future. Mm. And so you've got all of these unknowns that you're multiplying together, and if one of those has got a big error in it, well, everything else has got the same Mm. error. So you're trying to reduce down the errors in each of these different unknowns so that ultimately your your projection to the future, what you're trying to see is more likely to be accurate. Mm. And that, that just requires lots and lots of measurements. We've had people who have taken technology from um, particle accelerators and they've applied them into, um, for example, scanning for liquids in bottles in, a, in the airport. So that at the moment you can't take your bottle through because you don't know what's inside it. If you could measure what was inside of that and say whether or not it was an explosive or something that's not allowed, imagine how much faster those cues oh would be. In that. So that's something that's come out of... Uh, um, some of the labs who are doing work. And, oh. and because particle acceleration is obviously typically imagined as, as quite an esoteric branch Absolutely. of science, but the fact that it would have such a practical application to something that affects all of us when we're standing in line looking at our watches, worrying if we're going to miss our flight because there's such a long queue at security. And the, the application of uh, astronomy instrumentation looking at um, retinal diseases. I mean, the, the night sky is very dark. You need very sensitive instruments to measure what's happening in these distant galaxies. Turns out the same sort of technology can be used to look at the back of the retina, where all that light's being absorbed, very little reflected back. You want to look at those tiny reflections, and we're producing some machines which hopefully will help the early diagnosis of age-related macular degeneration. Leading cause of blindness in the Western world, and you think, that's a major Im- impact. And there. that's come from technology we use to look at the darkest parts, distant dark parts of the Furthest universe. Furthest away you yes. can imagine. And, and now it, we're it starting to apply that to looking into the eye. I think that's... That's, that's wonderful. Yes. When you can see that direct application from an area of science into everyday life. Now, Tim Peake's Principia mission is named in celebration of Isaac Newton's groundbreaking physics text, Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy, which sets out laws of motion and gravity on which all space travel depends. Newton was a native English speaker, but Principia, as a serious scientific work, was written in Latin to ensure it could be read by the widest possible audience in the 17th century. Lots of the words we use about space today do have their roots in the classical languages, Latin and Greek. But something that intrigues me is how many such words were used in science fiction before they made it into science fact. Examples include astronaut, which was used to mean space traveller in science fiction in the 1920s, and used in the 1880s, it was the name given to a fictional spacecraft. Using spaceship to describe a vessel sailing through space also dates back to at least the 19th century, appearing in J.J. Astor's 1894 novel A Journey to Other Worlds. So, on an interestingly shaped banquette in BBC Broadcasting House's busy atrium, I met Helen Zaltzman, podcasting queen and the brains behind The Illusionist, a podcast about language and etymology. 
to find out more about space words past, present and future. I guess a trend that we see now is that we are going to be taking words from science fiction, from the science fiction that already exists about life on Mars. We're potentially going to be looking to that for when we actually settle on Mars. Maybe. I think it partly depends on who actually achieves it. So uh, a lot of science terms at the moment are from the English language because that has been a dominant language in international science, but that may not be the case forever. And if, say, Japan is the first to found Mars, then we will probably acquire a lot of Japanese words to describe Mars functions and, and uh, features. Um, because that happens as well. You, you take the conqueror kind of uh, gets the vocabulary in uh, a lot of cases. Interesting. That yeah. is why English has been such a successful language due to the uh, rather keen foreign policy uh, historically. <laughs> that England has pursued over the years, yeah. yes, sadly. Yes. Mm. 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 So we could have, so in, if we are looking for the sort of terms of the future, if we are looking for, maybe we should be looking to Russian science fiction, Japanese science fiction. Exactly, exactly. The other thing I suppose that could happen is that words are adapted from ancient Latin and Greek because that is also something that happens. You've got that with the planets already. You have that with astronaut. Mm. Um, and those words tend to sound official. And I think that's because we are conditioned to feel that but also a lot of official business historically has been conducted in latin say in britain um that was the legal language for hundreds of years so um that could happen as well and it means that you don't have to look for a brand new word but on the other hand if you wanted a word that sounded super modern spacey then maybe you would go for something that sounded a bit made up yeah and also those languages um are international so even though Latin is not exactly a current language, it's understood by people who don't necessarily speak the same modern language. So it's useful in that respect. So actually, maybe my money would be on Latin and Greek. Okay. Particularly mm. mm. if they're taking inspiration from the Odyssey. And <gasps> um, oh my gosh, what Ulysses? Um, did you watch the cartoon? I did watch the cartoon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that yes. would be the, the Latin, the Latin yes. adaptation thereof and then adapted into a cartoon so yes. it's all plausible and the word astronaut itself as well um, being being a classical word that is exactly what they did isn't it they took some classical terms and made a new word yeah. but it refers to sailing that's the, the nought um, so sailing among the stars yeah astronaut so again the, the, sa the sailing is alluding to not literal sailing because they're not in water but it's building on that tradition of uh, exploration and peril that most for most of human history if you wanted to go a long distance you would be sailing yeah yeah exactly. to another country or you know, yes or horseback or whatever but yeah yes and it was pretty dangerous and uh, would take years so yeah so a you lot can of see the parallel <laughs> you really can open my eyes helen alien has only meant the sense of creature from another planet um since well it formally entered the lexicon in 1953 it's probably a bit before that before that it was just a foreigner mm. and i think that's interesting now in context when it is applied to humans it seems like a deliberately dehumanizing word uh, but also not one that glamorizes them and makes them seem like they might be martians or something they might be bringing a special knowledge that's going to save us from ourselves ourselves <laughs> and we're like no we don't want it get out it's foreign yeah so it's a word i'm, I'm find a bit depressing now but I went to um, a place in Nevada 
Uh, Nevada is a very empty state. It only really has Las Vegas and Reno in it as large conurbations and and the sort of satellite towns of those towns. And the rest of it, that you can go a couple of hundred miles without seeing anyone or anything. And there's a very tiny town called Rachel, which is the nearest town to Area 51. And there are only about two buildings in Rachel. But one of them is a place called the Lil Ailey Inn. So it's a pun, because it's, nice. it's an inn. Nice, And um, there's a flying saucer on a little crane uh, in the car park. And um, the place is full of plastic aliens and fuzzy photos of things that might be a UFO, but probably a pigeon. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Oh, a, hello. A I lot, want to believe. <laughs> a lot of X-Files, I want to believe type yes, of paraphernalia. Yes. And then the ceiling is covered in dollar bills. for uh, a sort of clashing theme there. Yeah, sort of capitalism and... Aliens. Yeah. I found it rather charming. Hmm. Um, but also I was quite surprised that there wasn't more Area 51 stuff yeah. around because Americans love to make a tourist attraction. Yeah, and that was the only place. I've that not was been. the only place. No, well, you you would be hard-pushed to go because it yeah. uh, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's in the middle of nowhere, hence... Yeah. yeah, it's hours from anything. Except for cows. There are quite a lot of cows around. <laughs> they don't talk. You can't make them talk. No. <laughs> Inscrutable. <laughs> They know what they've seen. But wow. That's, wow, that's really cool. It's quite cool. Yeah. I'm pleased I went. I bet you are. I'm not sure I would go deliberately again. No, no. Just if you if you need the toilet when you're driving through Nevada, options. For the facilities. Oh, for I the thought facilities it was a pilgrimage. I thought it was a pilgrimage that you made because you were. Right, we've seen it, now we're really, going back. Yes, you're really into it, but no, it was for their uh, it's for their washrooms. <laughs> Needs must. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's why they landed in Area fifty one <laughs> really <laughs> Really could use a diner right now. It's a very right prosaic explanation, yeah. but a very plausible We one, need a tea and a wee, and then uh, it just all backfired when the government got involved. I wonder if that would be something that we would take into space with us. We would name new cities on new planets after uh, cities on Earth. I absolutely think that would happen. And partly because people get um, homesick. Um, so I remember going to Melbourne Cathedral uh, in the Australia version of Melbourne, and the, there was an old lady who was showing me around and um, it looked very familiar from home. And she was saying, it's because all these Brits mm. ended up here and they were homesick, so they built this thing that looked like home and they put all these acorns on it and stuff like that. They have a lot of very unique flora and fauna yes, in Australia. Exactly. So why would you, yes, why would you use a very traditional English yeah. sort of fruiting so, tree? So I think that would happen. I think also you might get people naming it after either real people that they miss or fictional characters that were influential to them. So you might actually get these words from science fiction films uh, becoming the names of these places because there's that familiarity and that those things might have meant a lot to those people before they went. So you might get a lot of Star Wars names, say, and uh, being becoming real. Or Galaxy Quest. Those actually will become real places, but just very mm. different from in the film. And people will laugh because they'll look at the film and they'll go, oh, we're in this sort of outpost. Yes. I'm to mine helium or yeah. <laughs> And it's not very glamorous, but... Um. Yes. And uh, it took 70 years to get here. and <laughs> so, so lonely. And there's nothing to eat but paste. Yes. But yeah, what a lovely idea. The word rocket... It seems to have originated from a word for a bobbin, as in what you would wind around with yarn uh, when you were re weaving a oh. rug or something like that. And I assume it's just because the shape of a rocket was similar to that. Oh, wow, maybe, yes. Because the, the 
um, Stevenson's rocket, isn't there? The, the railway. Yes, but I yeah. assume that that, that was, was named same... after the idea of speed rather than a bobbin. Yeah. <laughs> Which don't tend to be super speedy. Some weaving is quite fast, but yeah. not on the it's... scale of uh, mechanised rail travel. Um, so it's quite a, a simple mundane object to name something that is very complex technologically and can go into space. That is, that is actually, I hadn't thought that. That's nice. And you can hear more from Helen on Words of All Hues at www.theillusionist.org. Still with rockets, but heading from illusionists to an illusionist, Patrick Page was a Scottish professional stage magician. In the 1970s, he interviewed many of the greats of magic, and this collection of recordings has been made available for the very first time. This is an excerpt from his interview with fellow magician and mentalist Morris Fogel, who staged becoming the first Briton in space, beating Helen Sharman by several decades, but launching not from Russia, as Helen and Tim Peake did, but from a field near Butlins in Skegness at the end of the 1950s. Morris starts by talking about the background to the stunt and how he was inspired by the showmanship of the Russians and their leader Khrushchev when they started the space age by launching Sputnik in the 1950s. In the intervening years, we've learned that Morris Vogel was absolutely right. Khrushchev really did want to show off the spectacular nature of Russian communism with ever more daring and brilliant achievements in space, though Morris's own space flight may have been, well, less dramatic in reality. Round about that period, in the London Evening News, there's a big front-page story about the rocket. The Russian Sputnik going around the earth. Now, I was so naive, this is just true. I thought, this Christian, what a clever, it's a great illusion, it's a, what a showman. I didn't think it was possible for that to happen. And they're going round, and what is the name of the observatory here? Jodrell Bank. Jodrell Bank. And I thought they're all in on it. And I gave more credit for that. The fellow I remember was the manager of Woolworths at that time, who was the president of the Rotarians. He said, yes, come up, make your way to Woolworths, ask for the manager, that's me, and I'll have some of the boys around there, we'll have, we'll have lunch and discuss it. So I went up there, and I said the, the idea that I had in mind. I said, how would you like for me to be shot into space? Before doing so, I declare the Garden Fate open, and I'm going to land on the cricket pitch where it was being held. Inwardly, I had thinking that Khrushchev was a marvellous showman. I thought, what he can do, I can do. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to be flown into space and I'll be landing on this site after orbiting six times around the Earth, see, on this site. I thought, that's a new way of opening the Garden Fate. They'll have a couple of hours for the people who are going to wait. I know I would, to see the big parachute down. Wait a minute. And they'll take the money. And I loved it. The more I thought of it, the more I loved it. Then the problem started. I thought, what am I going to do? That's when I started worrying sick. So I came home. I thought, well, rocket, fireworks. I want red fire and a big bang to synchronise with a big flash. My biggest help was a dentist, by the way, but I'll tell you about that later. Then I went down there a week or two before the 
the season opened, and I went to see the Rotarians. And to them, this is what I said. I said, now, I need a rocket. And roughly my mind, I had it mapped out, because I knew they had builders, like girders to be erected, and a platform with flight into space. And that I wanted a rocket. So the dentist, I told you, and then I wanted a flash, so they wouldn't, would blind them for a little bit. He produced the magnesium. A dentist concerned, I don't know, he, he, he was very interested. The rocket we had made from linen and painted silver, see, I was going to make it, uh, oh yeah, I wanted a flash, and to synchronize with a flash, that it should burn. And I was going to lie flat, because it's only, uh, I could easily lie flat in the top of the uh, platform. So he said he could get it made, and then the next thing we wanted was some sort of a uniform. So he got onto the RAF, but I wanted something like an astronaut. I don't know where he, f he found it all, because um, he knew where to go. And during the war, for the kids' prams, you know, gas masks, everybody had, a, had to have a gas mask, but for kiddies in the pram, they had a sort of waterproof thing that went over. He found one of those. I got it all, everything to put on, and that was to be burnt. There was a big lorry. The local radio man, the fellow who had the radio and electronics shop in the high street of Skegness, he supplied the lorry with a load of lights. I said, it doesn't mean anything, as long as people can see it running round, you know, flicking on and off. And there was somebody standing there with earphones, you know, uh, and it all looked good. If you've got a story, if you want publicity, and you go and ask for it, it's not so good. It's not so good as, as if they would try and seek it. Do you know what I mean? Yes, yes. If he's a reporter... So in other words, you leak it and make them it. come yeah, looking but, for but it. Yeah, but, but now what was a leakage? Now, to leak it, I thought, now, what is a subtle way of leaking it? I made inquiries around Skegness to some of the locals, where they issue licenses for vehicles. So they said, in Lincoln is the head office. So I wrote to Lincoln. Now, next door to uh, Button Skegness is a little village called Ingermells, Ingold Mells. So uh, the gist of the letter that I had typewritten to uh, Lincoln uh, Motor Licensing Department I wrote to them saying, um, the, we are a body of people, a few of us, you see, and we've built a rocket to launch into space. Listen to this. And uh, this will be launched on such and such a day from Skegness. Now, we are in Ingermells, and being loyal, respectable citizens and not wishing to break the law, we're seeking guidance, I on behalf of my colleagues, we spent a long time doing this in secret. But to take, we've got to take that rocket to the launching pad, you see, <laughs> having to go through the highway, the Queen's Highway. And uh, what are the rules? Does it need a registration? Do we need a license to, for it to go on the roadway? <laughs> I got a letter back saying that like uh, it's without with precedent it's being attended to and and all that but what i 
wanted to happen did happen. Police. Yeah. At the same time, well, I knew it happened because one day when I went into the camp, so the entertainment officer said, oh, crumbs, glad to hear my but we've had the sergeant from the police down wants to see you specially. And they were getting worried but I didn't have anything wrong. I thought, thank God it's happened, you see. So um, I rang up. I said, my name's Fogel. I've been, you know, I've been told that you're looking for me. And the fellow said, oh, yeah. He said, uh, the superintendent would like to see you, see. So I said, what about Sunday morning? I'm free. So on the Sunday morning, I went up to see him. I went to see to the police station. And the sergeant said, uh, when I announced myself, he said, oh, yes, the superintendent's here. And also he's got the motoring fella. I don't know what you call What do you call them? For the police, yeah, the, the, the one the traffic control, traffic, the traffic uh, head of traffic yeah. is giving up his half day or something to come in. So I thought, oh my god, you know, I'll upset them. So I went in, a fellow was sitting behind his desk. I said, Sir, my name's Frank. Well, he said, Good. He said, I've got someone here, especially, you know, traffic controller, um, and he'll be able to help you. See. He must have, he must have thought, I'm a bit of a crank, but not to, he had to be polite to me. I said, well, look, sir, that's what I want to speak to you about. And I said, don't call him yet, please. Let me explain the situation to you. He said, well, take a seat. I said, uh, look, sir, it's all for charity. And I explained it to him. I thought, I might as well. And the bloody frock, it was out there on display, you know, for people to see. See, it looked great in the, you know, skyline. I said, it's a stunt, sir. It's to open the garden fate. And, uh, but actually it's happened the way I thought it would. See, I'm only hoping that they'll have told the press, or one of you people have. He said, oh, that'll happen, don't worry. He said, that, uh, he was laughing for this time. I said, well, you won't say a word, will you, sir? You won't give me away. He said, no, why not? The scene, it was terrific. See, so when I went in, I, I said, I hope this and I'll be parachuted down. I went in the thing and slipped down to lay flat, you know, with a little trap. It didn't need yeah. very clever mechanism. And, on, and then I pressed a button and it synchronized with a big flash. And that, that's right, um, they, they made it flammable, not inflammable, but the thing was flammable. Yeah. It went up with a flash and, and, and red underneath the platform you know, red yeah. fire, all synchronised, and the, it was spectacular, there's no doubt about it. But what happened was this, it was summertime, that was on display for a few days, so actually that wood became very... Uh, dry. Very, very dry. You can imagine me lying back like that, say, help me. Getting roasted. And <laughs> No, and I could hear it, the crackling of the, the, the embers, like yeah. fire, and I can smell the, my hair being singed. I was getting afraid I had to be, I didn't want to give the game away. And I slid down into the back of a lorry, which went out the gates, you see. I went round to the dentist's house, round the corner, that's where they took me. And the receptionist, they made me a cup of tea. And I waited there a couple of hours while they were carrying on. Then suddenly, there's a, they, uh, through the microphone, this fellow said, ladies and gentlemen, just a moment, um, because he was giving a running commentary, I was keeping contact with him as a orbit by radio. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I've got round once 
twice, three times. He, <laughs> he came and they're all cheering. And then he says, just a moment, I can't hear a thing. Ladies and gentlemen, um, no, there's no contact at all. Not a thing. And he spoke as if he was worried. Um, as soon as we make a contact, we'll let you know. See? And what are people are waiting? Then suddenly he says, We've got some wonderful news. He's arrived yes. in the field next door. No, he's <laughs> arrived two, a mile away. No, a mile <laughs> or two miles away. He's here. And as they, oh, I got it all later. They cheered. So help me, Pat, I give my word of honour. Because the police, they came in on it. It's beautiful. Without riders. And I came in a car, which they uh, came from the back streets of the dentist's place. And as I went through the gates, the cricket ground, people were crying. <laughs> Wonderful. And you can listen to more vintage magic interviews at www.patpagearchive.com. Adventures in Space and Tim is made in association with the UK Space Agency and the International Centre for Life in Newcastle. The theme music is Modular Space by Martin Molin from the band Wintergarten. This podcast was presented, produced and edited by Helen Keane, with help from Miriam Underhill, Ian Simmons and Ellen Roberts, with special thanks to Barry Murray and the Patrick Page Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. Oh! A Wolf Tea Production.